So last week I was on a very long walk, which is just pretty typical for me. But um, I uh, ended up, I just had this random thought. Like there's this, there's this program here in Indianapolis uh, at IUPUI, which used to be like a, a no, not like a nothing commuter school basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it has morphed into an interesting school of its own identity. So they have um, a pretty robust music technology program. Okay. Um, which is run by the engineering school uh, okay. of Purdue. So it's right. A, so IUPUI is Indianapolis University, or no, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Exactly. Two schools that have traditionally hated each other. <laughs> yeah, but they work really well <laughs> together in this yeah, sense, yeah. in this sense. So, um, so you've got some traditional music classes in the within the auspices of the undergraduate program. So undergraduates, it's more of like a music degree with like an emphasis on computers. Mm-hmm. Um, Master's degree is sort of middle of the road where uh, you can sort of you can do a lot of what you want. Like you can do a cognate in an outside program, but they're mostly going to hit you with like basic coding, um, sound design. Like they're going to they're going to hit you with like basically here's how to be useful and know how to do sound, make sound, do whatever the fuck you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's a PhD program. In music technology, which just started, it's one of three in the nation actually with the with this accreditation. Okay. Um, and that program is sort of the wild west uh, in a certain sense. So they've got they just they just poached a developer from Microsoft to start this degree, um, and it's got everything from edu- like educators trying to use trying to develop musical software to assist with like science curricula. To okay. like people designing circuits and using AI in music, um, and and sort of a, a few things in between. So it's it's a mm-hmm. really interesting program, and um, and I got accepted a couple of years ago. And, but congratulations, thanks. Uh, but I but I wasn't like I applied to it because it was a safety, and then at the time I was like I don't want to do a PhD that I'm not quite sure of, and then I was on a long walk the other day and started thinking about this program again. So I had a meeting with the guy who runs it. Um, on Friday and I realized like where my headspace is at seems to be more in tune with it. I think the, you know, last year I was still thinking about like straight up composition PhD, like going to write orchestral mm-hmm. music and teach in the university, but I didn't have enough faith in the academic system then to do that. Mm-hmm. And then now with the shutdown, like I'm pretty sure they're going to start cutting tenure lines like nobody's business. Oh, you think so? I I'm wondering if there's going to be a big uptick in uh, postgraduate degrees. No, there's going to be an uptick in postgraduate degrees. I'm talking about the jobs after those. Okay. So specifically, like I'm talking about, like, um, like I think college administrators are going to cut tenure line jobs and lean harder into the adjunct faculty because they're cranking out all these people that have on paper a valuable degree but don't have job prospects. And so we'll teach for, for sub sub like suboptimal wages. Sure. Yeah. That's been the case already for a few years. Though. For a few years. But this, I think that this particular like shutdown will, mm-hmm. they'll lean in. The administrators will lean into that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, administrators really like removing and removing qualified instructors and replacing them with more administrators. Um, right. So this degree reason I started thinking about it is like, A, just bought a house in Indianapolis, so I'm here for the long haul. The degree is here. Uh, it is getting a bunch of world-class people from wildly different fields. And um, and it's something that will make me employable outside of academia, which is which is sort of what I want you know, right. out of a degree if I'm going to do it. I don't even know if I'm going to do it yet. I mean, it, earliest I would start is January. Okay. But... Um, but it's something I've been thinking about, and it's, and that's sort of what I wanted to talk about is, um, getting out of the mindset of of being one kind of creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've sort of, and I've gone back and forth. I mean, I think there's, I don't know if you shared this this fantasy, but I always, as a kid, like really leaned into the idea of like the polymath, is like sure. the end yeah. all be all of like intellectual life. 
And well, I don't think the like the strict definition of a polymath is you're just like the best at like you just are on the cutting edge of every field that exists. Like that's not possible anymore. No, it doesn't seem possible in modern with right. modern science. But but being a really talented generalist is yeah, like a, a, just a, a renaissance man. Exactly. Um, and I was wondering, like, what your experience with this has been like you were you were a musician for a long time and not that you're not now but like that was like your main creative outlet you started doing design and and like are still doing that but like do you feel a similar desire desire to be like good at a bunch of different things yeah that's been a curse and a blessing for me um in my career Mm -hmm. because even within just the design world there's a lot of specialization that can happen sure and I never really specialized. Yeah. Um, which for certain types of podru- projects and jobs is really detrimental. Okay. Sometimes you want, um, especially if you're working on like one thing for a long amount of time. Like say you were an in-house design team for Google or something. Sure. Yeah. Um, you are like even more accessible examples. Let's say something like Nike is building an in-house design team. Mm-hmm. Um, you want, for your print advertising, you want people that are experts in color and then like maybe a whole nother person that's just an expert in typography. Right. And for your shoes, you want somebody that's just an expert in materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and another that's an expert in, I don't know, all the fashion design stuff. Well, fashion itself, just the aesthetics of it. How do you take these materials and make them look good and interesting? Sure. So, you know, like a long haul team like that, it's really important to have a some people that can just go crazy deep on one thing. Right. But then where um, I'm like not the best typography guy, not the best color, not the best animation, not the <laughs> best interaction, but I can do all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to just tear into projects that are um one need to be really quick uh-huh you don't have a time you don't have time for to build this team and build the dynamics between all these people and stuff you just need one person that can get like a hundred things done quickly right yeah um and then also stuff with a shoestring budget yeah um and then there's also like a, an advantage to like moving quick with a small team of generalists where you didn't know two days ago that you needed an animation expert. Yeah. But you've got a guy in your team that's pretty good with animation. And now he can bust out this part that you hadn't accounted for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think there, I think there's something to be said um, that is, I think frowned upon maybe in traditional education, but is super useful once you get out into the world, which is like the ability to like, just sink your brain into a kind of task, very short term. Mm-hmm. And be comfortable with the fact that, that, like, like be comfortable with, like, it's sort of like cramming on an exam. Like, be comfortable with, like, learning a very short-term expertise that gets the project done. And then the next project, it may not be used at all. Or you may right. never, you may never understand that concept that well ever again, as well as you understood it on Monday afternoon, three hours before the deadline. Right. Um, or even just for... Um learning enough about a field to just do the piece that you need. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. say that I need to learn, um, like animation is a good example. Cause that's typically a kind of a specialist skill mm-hmm. um, that you could go deep on and all, there's all different sorts of types of animations and stuff, but say I needed to create an animation for a user interface that is just um, a button clicking in and clicking out. Like when you tap on it. Right. So I could just learn that piece be a semi-expert in that piece and don't know not know anything else about the principles of animation like just know that one little like trick to do it and you're you know you're not going to write a dissertation on movement and interfaces (laughs) but you know how to do this one thing and even deep diving on the different ways like i mean the way i do my generalist work is typically to just um take a quick look at what everybody else is doing right yeah um and to be able to do that try to figure out why they're doing it the way they're doing it and then distill that down into making it a, a decision for your own product in the short term absolutely um that's been really beneficial and then yeah. to kind of get back to what you were asking about like i think the bigger generalist questions i think 
um, being kind of a polymath in in the creative spaces is has always served me well. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's things that I know about audio from dabbling in music and it has been a long time. I don't even really consider myself a musician anymore. That was kind of a part of my life a while ago. Right. But to be able to now when I'm doing video editing to understand um, songwriting structure, to pick out um, the flow of how the video works. Mm -hmm. It's the same principles, you know, right. You're talking about building and progressing and things like that and transitions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and creating mood. Yeah, and I and I've always like, you know, I've I've always like gone back and forth on on like, you know, you just brought up the fact that you don't consider yourself a musician anymore. anymore. And to a certain extent, like even when I was doing a master's in music, I didn't really consider myself a musician to a certain in in the same fashion that like say someone yeah. who is like spending their life studying one instrument or studying one lane. Mm-hmm. is is that um like i don't even i don't even know if like i don't even know if i'm a composer by a lot of standards um i think that uh but i will you know that those kinds of thoughts really do like come into play especially like the general thing like you were talking about um the the idea that like when you're going to work on a project you'll look at how everybody else is doing it and try to like distill like a method or a reason Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just had this experience today. So today I cooked, uh, like three dishes that I had never cooked and, and they're all super basic. I'm just trying to learn basic kitchen skills. So yeah, one of them was like hot pockets, easy mat, <laughs> and pop tarts. I- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I- <laughs> that was very good. I've made all three of those. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I made a, a red sauce from scratch. Um, I made Brussels sprouts and then um, and then the third one, I, I feel like maybe I have made at some point, but made garlic bread with no like preset things. I was just making sure. it. What about that disgusting Chex Mix you used to make when we were in middle school? Oh boy. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> there were there were ups and downs. Sometimes I made good Chex Mix and then, then other times I tried to experiment and it was not good. I never had good Chex Mix that you made. Hmm. Well, come over to Christmas some year. I've had uh, Chex Mix that you made, just not good. <laughs> I I settled my shit down after high school. I was like, I okay. can I can do this, but I can do this really well if I just. Weren't you doing something really wacky with Doritos at one point in college? Maybe. I don't remember. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, there were some there were some phases with uh, pre made <laughs> foods that shouldn't exist. <laughs> the fact that you remember them is disturbing to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Dude, I remember the wildest thing the other day. Mm. Um, I remember the um, one day it was me and you and we were hanging out at that church venue. Yeah. Oh, geez. And I, um, I was like, Rob, I heard about this thing called French press coffee. Uh huh. And it's supposed to be really good. We should go find and procure a French press and some coffee and try it. Yeah. And we went to Dillard's in the mall because <laughs> they had a boat and French press. <laughs> and we bought it. And I think we went back to my dad's and made French press coffee for the first time. And I still have that French press. That's still my daily. It's a good French press. It is. That's it's like that's like the gold any standard. Of the parts are, hardly any of the parts are original. Okay. Did you get a new uh, mesh for it and everything? New mesh. Uh, the craft has broken a couple times. So okay. That's not original. But, you know, if you're going by like car standards with like matching vin yes it's it's the original thing yeah it's the original yeah that's good uh yeah anyway you were making you were making red sauce yeah and so so i you know i looked up a couple recipes and 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 so basically for all these dishes what i did is just like looked up a bunch of recipes for all of them because like there's 50 blog posts about making normal ass Brussels sprouts. There's 50 blog posts about making normal ass red sauce and they all vary a little bit, but like what you're trying to get down is like the methodology. Mm-hmm. And so like by the end of the day, like I, you know, I was sort of just researching this um, until it was time to start cooking. And and so by the end of the day, it's just like, Oh, I'm not even going to like, I, don't, I didn't follow a recipe by the end of it. I was just like, Oh, like I'm going to, make a red sauce and then I have to start baking this thing like 20 minutes into that. And like, 
you know, normally when I'd be like juggling recipes, I would like, you know, set a bunch of timers, do the whole thing. And then this time I just like set one timer for an hour and watched mm-hmm. it occasionally. It was like, okay, it's like 20 minutes into this timer. I need to do this thing. Like, and it felt way less stressful, like building, just like building an understanding. I mean, and, and granted, these are super basic dishes. They're, it's not like, you know, was, it's not like it was breaking new ground. I was just like trying to make functional food that I had never made before um, that is, you know, made daily in other cultures. Sure. Um, and so. Once you make your own um, red sauce, you'll like kick yourself for never buying jarred sauce. It's oh so easy God. to make and it's, it's so much better. So, it's so much better. Like, yeah. It's so ridiculous. And it's like no effort. I mean, like yeah. the, the most effort you have to do is like pay attention to your pan for 10 minutes yeah, and make sure you drop the onions in to start caramelizing to b- before you burn your garlic. And that's really the only intense part of that cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like the hardest part for me is just to let something sit and have faith that I did it. Okay. Like, uh, so like that was the hard part is like, you know, the first like 20 minutes, like, okay, make things started simmering. Then I got 20 minutes before I have to do anything. And I, like, it was really hard to just like let that pot sit for 20 minutes and right. not like stir it or do anything. Just like, this will work. Just have faith. That yeah. This will work. Um, which maybe is a metaphor for how I deal with life in general, but, uh, sure. so what you were talking about with the hour long timer and trying to kind of like stage out your meal. So it, it all gets done at the same time and yeah. stressful. I'm, I'm thinking about starting a small project. It would be a video project. Cool. Um, it's about, um, being an effective barista. Hmm. And there's a lot of content out there about how to make a really great espresso shot or how to foam milk perfectly and things yeah. like that. But nice. I want to make some video content about workflow. Okay. Which I never see stuff about. Which is kind of like what you're talking about now. Like, okay, I've got it's, – it's busy. I've got six drinks to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also got to like maintain my little station and make sure my machine's running well and the beans are stocked up and there's cups and chocolate and everything within reach milk. Right. Um, and that, so I've been thinking a lot about that same thing you're talking about just within the context of coffee, but you're talking about cooking, of mm. uh, yeah. that whole, like, I think if I'm hearing you right, what you said about, um, you used to like set a bunch of timers and then. Yeah. That was stressful. And then now you're thinking of like the whole meal as the unit and you're yeah. kind of breaking the task down within that. Exactly. One of the things I try to think about for the barista thing is um, there's a term in project management called the critical path. Interesting. Which means like basically, you know, you've got 10 tasks that need done for this project and the the opposite of the critical path would just be you do um, you do the 10 tasks in a row. Right. So for simplicity's sake, say each task takes one hour, the project's going to take 10 hours if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. But the critical path is you figure out what all the dependencies are and what can be done at the same time and what can be done before or after other tasks. And you kind of like map it out in a way that what's the shortest amount of time I could have this project done. Can the electrician work while the plumber is working? Cool. Let's put those at the same time. Now we're working. Now it's nine hours instead of 10 hours. Yeah. Um, But like, oh, the basement has to be dug before we do this other thing. So that has to be done first and it has to be done by itself. And you kind of like figure out uh, these 10 hours worth of tasks can be done in, um, you know, six hours or whatever. Yeah. That's a critical path. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's super helpful thinking and cooking and coffee making and all sorts of other stuff. But I think about it a lot when I'm making espresso drinks where it's like, okay, pulling the shot takes, you know, 25 seconds minimum of the of actual just like espresso running through the portafilter. Right. Um, I don't want to be standing there doing nothing while that's happening. It's basically wait, how, like, wait, hold on. How many seconds? About, you know, 25. Oh, okay. I thought you said 45 for a second. I was like, oh my God. No. <laughs> yeah, I shoot I shoot for about a 25 second pour when I do it. Yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty good. There's, I just had a really nerdy in-depth conversation about this with another barista that there's a lot more to a good shot than the amount of time it takes to pull out. That's but, fair. Um, for simplicity's sake, yeah, I'd say it takes about 25 seconds to pull yeah, out a yeah. good shot. 
not just the espresso running through the thing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like I don't want to, the long story short is I don't want to be standing there twiddling my thumbs while the, that 25 seconds is going on. Yeah. Can I be steaming the milk while that's happening or putting ice in the cup for the ice drink or setting up my next drink mm-hmm. or doing a couple dishes or whatever, like whatever it happens to be that I need to get done. Right. And that's where like, as you get better at cooking and you've got that like 20 minutes where your red sauce just needs to simmer and you're not allowed to touch it. You'll, you know, if you were an Italian grandma, you would have your plan already for that. Oh, that's when I do this other thing. Sure. Yeah. 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 And it wouldn't feel like you, you at that point, it's not like, Oh, I'm being impatient because I'm waiting for the sauce. You're like, yeah, thank God this thing has to sit for 20 minutes. Cause now I have time to, you know, drain the pasta or whatever. Right. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was certainly doing other things, but it, it definitely, as far as the, the cooking process goes, yeah, it felt weird to just like let it do its thing. Yeah. I've been um, really into making beans, which is like four hours of just let it sit and don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the ultimate impatience. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. So you have to like, uh, is that during the like soaking process or? Well, soaking usually happens overnight. Okay. Um, but if you want to make like really good, the my kind of rule of thumb with beans is if like the longer and slower you can cook them, the better. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll try to start them um, around lunchtime. Okay. Like maybe I'll even start cooking my beans and then cook my lunch. Mm. And then my beans will be ready for dinner. Nice. Yeah. Like really low heat, like bring them up to a simmer and then drop the heat. Yeah, you basically want it like a little bit of a boil going and mm-hmm. then drop it down to like barely anything. Right, yeah. If you can get it to where the water's not really moving, mm. um, you'll get your beans really tender, but the skins won't break because they won't be bumping into each other. Interesting. So they like, um, they break, the skins break really easy and tender when they're in your mouth, but they're not, you don't get like a, like a thick, weird soup thing. Yeah, yeah. Which can be good sometimes if you want that. Sure. But, if you're making this a beans, is now, this making, is now a beans podcast. Yeah, if you're making a bean <laughs> soup, for example, you kind of want the yeah. soup. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've just been, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like how, like, man, just sometimes just if you, if you slap like a, a term on, on your identity as a creative or a professional or anything, it, you, you sort of, um, I don't know if you're limiting yourself, but you are maybe limiting your perception. Um, yeah. But it's also hard to just like, you can't make a resume based on like, I'm really good in the room. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I've had that problem my whole career. Uh-huh. Um, where a lot of times on, on paper, it might seem like I can't do a thing or I might not be the best candidate, but I've never, um, like, I'm not trying to brag about this, but like when I'm, when I'm doing design work and collaborating with a group of people, I'm, I always, I have no fear about nailing that part. Let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. Um, I know I can do my job in a room and, um, bring a group of people together together to collaborate and also like steer it in the right way as a designer. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you're right. What do you, what do you do? Like, without looking like an asshole just like oh trust me you're gonna love me once you meet me (laughs) yeah exactly it's like it's really hard to to put a to put a finger on it like yeah uh, like what how you exactly do that i mean i did i did watch a talk recently um for uh it's called design for dilettantes something or other and melancholy interlopers have you happened okay. to, have you seen this talk at all no who gives it that's a good question let me find out um go. oh design for no nothings dilettantes and melancholy interlopers and it okay. is it was given by uh, Sarah Hendren. It's, it's a really good talk. It, it focuses a lot on Jacques Cousteau, okay. um, who I didn't know a lot about, but but the way she um, the way she opens up the talk is that um, is that she she talks about the fact that 
Jacques Cousteau will, will show up on a lot of lists for like most influential scientists of the 20th century um, and things like that. But, but he himself was not a scientist and never identified himself as a scientist. In fact, he was a movie director sure, um, and was more interested in that as his craft um, than anything else. And, and the, the thrust of the, the, like the thrust of the argument gets into traction in design and, and um, like at, at some point, Cousteau's in an is in a is in an interview, and somebody asks him like, well, "Do you consider yourself a scientist?" He's like, "No, no, no. Uh, I would consider myself an impresario of scientists," um, which is super interesting. Like, you know, mm-hmm. some background for anybody who doesn't know, like about what he the projects he spearheaded. He invented the first underwater camera, um, or maybe more correctly, like put the team together to invent the first underwater camera and made a lot sure. of advances in scuba gear to accomplish what he wanted. And then ended up filming a really famous show in the seventies, like the first oceanography like series. Yeah. Um, and so the whole, uh, the whole, th- the whole thing about like titles or like what you identify yourself in then comes into play. And she's talking about, she ends up talking about um, a pretty interesting case of like an amputee who like um, had something go wrong, but ended up in a medically induced coma, but had circulation issues, ended up losing um, like the, the top halves of most of her fingers. Okay. And she then talked about the fact that she got this multi thousand, like multi-million dollar Maybe multi-million is a little bit exaggerated. It's very expensive prosthesis. It was like a robotic arm that like helped her grab things, and and then uh, that person pretty promptly after getting fitted with this thing through a grant, like ended up abandoning it because it was heavy. It was like too heavy for the arm, like, and didn't allow her to accomplish like basic tasks. Um, uh-huh. And so she herself just ended up making a bunch of stuff that like like glo- like gloves that like um she would like cut the fingertips off of and then like she would like and then plaster molded that and just like stuck a pen in it so then she like regained her handwriting from that mm-hmm. and like all this stuff that like doesn't fall into maybe traditional aesthetics of like what we talk about as good design but like ended up being way more effective in terms of design and engineering sure um I thought that was really interesting, but like, you know, she herself is just basically a, you know, without being reductive, like how someone else would view her is like, she's like a housewife in Philadelphia. Like she's, sure. she doesn't fit the mold. Um, but she ended up designing a lot of things that really worked for her. Yeah, dude. I saw this thing on uh, PBS a while ago mm-hmm. about the hacker design culture in Cuba. Hmm. And it blew my mind. It was so Cuba was this weird, perfect storm for this type of thinking. Really? Because you had, well, because of the um, embargoes, they couldn't get new products in. Okay. So they were making that, like, if a lot of people wanted something or if they wanted something custom, they had to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, um, but also Fidel Castro implemented his free education system that actually worked really well. Right. So they have a huge population of engineers. Oh, shit. So people were just doing stuff like, um, like, oh, man, we don't have any fans and it's really hot in Cuba, but we're importing a bunch of our stuff from Russia when they, they probably don't need a lot of fans. But we have all these boat propellers and washing machine engines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they would make like fans for their kitchens and stuff. And they had all these like tin food trays. Yeah. And they were able to fashion these like um, radio antenna um, kind of signal boosters mm-hmm. out of these um, like spun tin food trays. Yeah. And pick up uh, like rock and roll stations from Miami. <laughs> rules. Like all this cool, like, um, you know, like the saying that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm hmm that people that wouldn't consider themselves product designers or, you know, designing product. Mm-hmm. That's And they're, 
I think that whole building out of necessity and like a natural evolution of a thing versus sitting out with a blank piece of paper and saying like, I'm going to invent the next big thing. You're right. You know, I think that's really how most great things actually come into being. Yeah, I it's think so. It's very rare to so just too. be like, I'm going to invent now. I'm going to put on my inventor hat and invent something. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's one of those things that, um, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's a certain like unpretentiousness. There's yeah. a certain uh, unpretentiousness that that goes a long way in, I think, like freeing freeing like people's minds to just be freely creative, mm-hmm. um, and not worry about the fact like, oh, I have this problem. I'm not a, I'm not an inventor. I'm not like a designer. I'm not like X, so I can't do this. Um, right. Which I find, I mean, I don't know if it's a uniquely American thing, but I do find it pretty prevalent um, among my peers, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's not, I mean, it's not thoroughly the case, but I definitely, I see it fairly often. Um, and I certainly have been in moments uh, where, um, where I've had those same thoughts. Yeah, I think the move to digital has been really detrimental to that sort of um, like customizer, like hot rodder spirit that a lot of Americans seem to used to have. Mm -hmm. Because now a lot of our a lot of our products that we like live with in our own homes are black boxes to us. Right. Um, You can't. It's too hard to understand how it works. So you can't really customize a thing. Right. Or, you know, upgrade it or make it fit your own uses better if you don't understand how the thing works in the first place. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really big, um, big part of that. Like it used, when we were more of like a farming, farming culture, like, you know, you needed to know how to service your tractor yourself mm-hmm. as a, as a farmer. And if you um, couldn't get a part and you needed it for your harvest and stuff was going to start like going bad in your crops you needed to be able to like fashion something that would solve the problem right and that all that comes from having a pretty good grasp on how how the thing actually works because mm-hmm. if you know you know if you know the purpose of the the broken part like you know that it's a belt that turns this pulley right and yeah it's a rubber belt but I have this strap of leather and if I cut it to the same width and, you know, sew it and put it on there like that, it performs the same task. Yeah. But if it's all ones and zeros on a, on a microprocessor, you can't like take apart your smart microwave and look at it and be like, <laughs> Oh, there's the problem. And right. I can replace that. It's all just silicone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something to be said. Yeah. I mean, as yeah, as appliances start to put computers on the face of everything, it does get harder to like yeah. fix them in a very fundamental way. Yeah, and it, they get more specialized, and they do get better at their their task. But then, in a way, they're kind of like worse at existing in our day to day lives. In a way, mm-hmm. yeah, or like fitting into the whole narrative. Like I remember one of the things that was really fundamental to me growing up was that my dad used to say um if you don't understand how a thing works you don't really own it right and he's you know he can fix anything he's one of those guys like i never we never ever ever had a repair person at our house right i saw them on tv and i'm like that's weird i thought dad's just fixed (laughs) whether it's the washing machine or the vcr or the car or whatever you know um and he said yeah he's like you don't if you don't really understand it you don't really own it that's yeah like if you can't fix it if you can't take it apart and change out the part that's broken and put it back together then you're just kind of like renting this thing in a way yeah it's pretty like it exists in your home with you yeah and that's i don't know if it's true or not but it's always stuck with me you know yeah yeah i don't know i don't know how like thoroughly man like oh we don't need to investigate the the ontological truth of that statement but the but that that sentiment it's definitely there for me i know for me it's like you know i'm still driving a car from 2004 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what your my car is too. Yeah, and it's but it's like right at the edge of like what I can reliably work on. Yeah, and so it's like I know the next car I get is just gonna be like in certain respects, other than hopefully just general maintenance, it's just gonna be out of my depth, like in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, yeah, like there there'll be a lot of stuff you can do to it, but then there's certain stuff with the with the ICU and stuff that you can't. Right, or not ICU. What am I thinking of? <laughs> uh, CPU. Yeah, but in a car they called an ECU. Oh yeah, no, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I don't know if that's what it is. It's something like that. Yeah, I think electronic I, computer unit. Yeah, I think something. so. Man, yeah, you're really close. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, my truck I bought purposefully. Um, I found one that's manual doors and windows and manual transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically the electronics on it are the, the radio, the lights, and the uh, fuel injection. Right. But yeah, it that stuff worries me too where it gets to where like yeah it's not going always going to be practical to buy a car from 2004. Mhm. Right. Um, you're not going to be able to find them with low miles that are reliable. Dude, I saw a 97 Camry that looked real good the other day and yeah. I almost just bought it. Like Yeah, somebody's like grandma bought <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. It looked so good. <laughs> and I was like, man, if this has low miles it's like a gold mine. Yeah. No. But yeah, I think that I have a little anxiety about that, about stuff that like I don't know how to work on and stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, stuff like our phones are such an important part of our day to day lives and they're like getting less and less serviceable. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, they're engineering them not to be serviceable. Yeah. There's that. And, and I get it too. Like, um, I think there's a bit of that. But then there also is this like, this shit needs to be this thin and like fit in your pocket and stuff. And we yeah. can't put hardware that's removable we've got to just epoxy it to it itself you know? right exactly yeah which is i don't know it's it's it seems weird for a device that has a two two-year lifespan right yeah it, to feel so permanent like, yeah exactly yeah um i mean i know like i was in a conversation with somebody you know, the other day and we were, we were talking about this cause I, you know, I'm thinking about getting a new computer soon um, because mine is starting to, is starting to eat it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, granted I've only owned two computers since high school, but the first one I could service the second one I couldn't, but it still lasted six plus years. Yeah. Um, and then, but we basically got into a conversation about, um, not frivolously replacing things and, and um, I won't name him just cause I don't want to imply anything about him. He's a great person, but he was like, yeah, man, I still have an iPhone 10. And I was just like, yeah, <laughs> that, I mean, that's not what we're talking about. Like, right. Right. I mean, I was like, I still have an iPhone six. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I still feel annoyed so, that I'm going to have to replace that soon. I had the iPhone SE, which I think came out around the same time as yeah. the six. And I just replaced it with the 11 Pro. Oh, yeah. How's that going for you? Which I highly recommend staying on the path that you're on where you wait just as long as humanly possible to upgrade and then upgrade to the best thing they make. (laughs) Because I feel (laughs) I feel so sorry for the people that upgrade every year and it must just feel like a slightly better version. For me, it was like just a radically different experience. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of what I'm into, honestly. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I do want to feel like, you know, if I'm going to make that investment, I do want that moment where it's like, yes, this is nice. Yeah. I almost (laughs) felt like it was like a Beverly Hillbillies moment where like I went from like, you know, a Model T to a Ferrari. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. And I'm thinking about the same thing. You know, one thing I am very happy about is that, you know, I was looking at computers. I'm still looking at Apple. Um, and, uh. Not that I'm an Apple apologist at this point. I just think hardware-wise, uh, I probably won't have as many issues. I, I could be wrong. I know that yeah. some people will tell me I'm wrong. But, um, but you know, I am glad. Like, I was looking at the last generation, um, and I'm glad I waited because they, oh, for they sure. messed up the keyboard. 
Which, I like, had that one. I had a couple of those, but they were all bought through work. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad I never had to pay my own like earned American dollars on those fucking Right, things. exactly. It's like they really messed up. I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, I've been reading articles. The new ones seem good. Like it looks like they went back to the other keyboard, which yeah. is smart. I mean, like I think that's that's one thing that, that annoys me is like why redesign something that's so good? Because like I so I'm using like a 2013 MacBook Pro. Yeah. And it was and say it was the first model that was like everything was soldered to the board. So I had a, I, it was also one that work bought for me, but like, you know, I had this trepidation. I was like, Oh, I can't replace any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's worked fine, but it also just has like the best keyboard I've ever used on it. Sure. Like, yeah, it's a great, keyboard. yeah, it's a great keyboard. And, and I'm sure there's better keyboards out there, but it's like, like there was part of me that was like, why did you try to redesign this? Yeah. Like this keyboard works. Dude, I have a book for you to read and it has the most pretentious name. Okay, hit me. It's called Notes on the Synthesis of Form. <laughs> and it kind of ties back into some stuff we were talking about earlier uh-huh. too, like with the Cuban hacking on stuff. But it's by this guy, Christopher Alexander. He's an architect. I think he teaches at Berkeley. Yeah. And it's about how um design decisions synthesize around a problem over time right and when you try to come in with your academic approach um and design something like clean slate Mm -hmm. you you fail almost every time because you um it's impossible for you to take into account all of the tiny decisions that have gone into a thing over time that solve for problems that you're not thinking of. Right. So things like, um, I feel like I know what happened for the Apple thing. <laughs> like I the, the butterfly keyboard, the problem they decided they were trying to solve with that was key stability. Okay. So when you press down on the old keyboards that are great, that never fail, the scissor switch mm-hmm. they call it. Yeah. If you were to, if you press in like the corner of one of the keys, you can feel that it goes down unevenly. Sure. Like the opposite corner of that is going to be up a little higher than uh-huh. the corner. And you can also like put your fingers on them lightly and f- move the keys around like you can kind of feel it float sure. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That was the problem they're trying to solve. They wanted a perfectly stable key that when you like press down in the very edge corner, the whole key still pressed down at the same Right. Like it felt like the same, like really precision movement. Mm -hmm. And they did. They solved that. (laughs) (laughs) By solving that and throwing away this old mechanism, they had all sorts of problems with like dust ingress points Mm -hmm. and um, like shallowness of the key feel and stickiness and like all these problems got introduced that weren't there before that maybe even the designers of that scissor key switch didn't know that they fixed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they were, it was working. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, the, and it's the also book's super interesting. The book has like, um, has one example that I love that was like, imagine this like thought experiment where you have an electromagnet mm-hmm. and you know, it produces magnetic waves and then you have a bunch of iron filings Mm-hmm. And you want to, your goal is to arrange the iron filings in a way that perfectly mimic the magnetic waves. Sure. So when you flip the switch on and off, they don't move. Okay. Um, There's two ways you could go about doing that. One would be a bunch of really complex math. Uh And you chart it all out and then you lay your, your things down perfectly, your little filings. And then you turn on the magnet and voila, it works. Yeah. And if you make one tiny mistake anywhere in that math you round the wrong place or whatever <laughs> um it the whole thing's gonna be a mess right like you turn the magnet on and everything goes everywhere yeah yeah the other way would be to just rapidly flip the thing on and off over and over again and move the filings incrementally incrementally until they're in the right spots right and he argues that like that is the kind of like dumb like happenstance design that creates great products over time right and he has some some of the really interesting stuff in that book is about the role of um like myth and religion and things like that Mm. and he talks about um 
you always have these like design students or like hotshot architects try to go to like some village in a third world country and like design them better huts to live in. <laughs> and it's always a huge failure. Yeah. Um, and they talk about how like there's things where it's like, oh, we always build a um, our doors have they face where the sun rises and it, it seems like a bunch of gobbledygook like woo woo shit. Right. Yeah. But then it turns out like as soon as you change that, you realize like, oh, God, the during the monsoon season, it's actually super important that your doorway doesn't like face the way the winds are blowing in. Right. And or those like, oh, we leave a notch at the top of our keyhole thing for the ancestors or whatever. Uh-huh. And then it turns out like as soon as you take that away, you're like, oh, shit, that notch wasn't there for the ancestors. It was there for <laughs> structural integrity or whatever, you know. <laughs> Right. And that like these things get passed down. Somebody has the foresight to see that it's important. Yeah. And they they come up with a reason why it needs to be passed down and that, you know, it it lasts forever. There's another podcast I listen to that's really funny where they talk about kind of the opposite of that effect uh-huh. where um they tell like an anecdote about someone making a pot roast and they they cut the ends of it off first. Okay. And th- throw it in the pan and they're like, Yeah, that's how grandma used to do it and it makes it better. And then grandma comes over for dinner one night and she's like, why are you cutting the ends off that pot roast? And she's like, oh, that's why that's how you used to always do it. It's like, yeah, my pan was too small. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think both of those end up having the same point, though, where it's like straying from practicality is right is is sort of the is sort of like the one thing you don't want to do in design where it's like going back to the keyboard thing where it's like the the intellectual appeal of having a key that presses down the same way in every direction is understandable yeah but like did any like were there widespread complaints like i think people know how keys work kind of you know what i mean like yeah but to be fair like that's always been one of those things that people have said like makes apple great is that like you know nobody was complaining about um the the milled edges not being like round like not having a bezel on them like that they're 90 degrees right on aluminum products but as soon as apple started doing a, bev- a bevel on things it was like holy shit this is like so luxurious that's and nice, that's true like, it yeah, feels yeah. in my hand yeah that's true and so like when they do it right it usually is a home run and i think that's the case with a lot of design mm-hmm. where it's like dang like it can be really underappreciated, you know, like where the average user doesn't think that they need this thing. Yeah. Like if you were to go, this is why like focus grouping doesn't work for like a lot of really good design decisions because mm-hmm. nobody thinks they want this stuff. But then when they have the thing in their hand and it's like the total package and every detail has been thought through, they know they know what it is. Right. When I used to have to explain this to clients that didn't want to spend the budget on it, I would always talk about because they would say it's the same every time, like. Well, nobody knows anything about typography except for designers anyway, so who's going to care right. if we just do it this way or that way? No, but we know. But here's the thing, and the, everyone understands this. You don't have to know anything about leather or stitching or materials to be blindfolded and put in a Hyundai mm-hmm. and then put in a BMW and know which one's the luxury car. Right, exactly. You don't have to know that it's the stitching that did that or the the type of leather that they used mm-hmm. or... Um, their universal design language where it's like, oh, the curve of the dash actually matches the hood so it feels cohesive when you look out from the driver's window. Right. Um, And all those are the decisions that we sweat as designers because we know they're important Mm -hmm. and that when they are all like working in harmony, it adds up to an experience that people do notice. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one of the big challenges, you know, is like, kind of justifying and knowing where to draw the line between like budget and time and risk. Cause it is a risk to change anything. Yeah. One of the things that I think is an important takeaway from all that stuff, um, especially that book notes on the synthesis of notes on the synthesis of form mm-hmm. is that um, I think the right answer is somewhere in between. Like, can you do some rough back of the napkin like math mm-hmm. to get, you know, 60% of the iron filings in the right spot. So you're not actually moving every one of them individually. Right. And then flip it on and then start iterating from there. Yeah. Um, so I think those are, I think that's kind of the big value of being like a professional in something like design is like, I have the expertise to get us, you know, 75, 80% of the way there. 
And then we test and iterate to get us that last 20% of the way there mm -hmm. versus someone that's not a professional just guessing. Right. And, you know, maybe you get 20% right or 0% right. Or maybe you get lucky and get 90% right. Right. But that, yeah, the expertise we bring to the table as designers is like we can bring that, you know, get you 80% of the way there every time consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty accurate. Like, and makes a lot of sense. I think there's, um, yeah, it's never going to be, it's never going to be like absolutely intellectual or absolutely practical to a certain extent, because again, you're trying to improve, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the, yeah, I guess the, the rule that like, oh, the ideal thing, the ideal version of the thing is the one that works. It's not actually like completely true because that cuts off imagination and, and, um, and questioning that leads to better versions of things. Yeah. And I think there's, um, especially in a world where things are changing so fast, mm -hmm. like, you know, that, that Mac keyboard we were talking about yeah. on the 2014 models is might have been the best keyboard that could exist given the technology at the time, right. given the materials that were practical and the manufacturing spec and all that stuff. Right. But do you want to keep making that keyboard in the year 2075? Like, is there, there, you know, there's a lot of chance that some of the compromises on the keyboard are no longer relevant and you can make actually something better. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things too, that we have to keep in mind that like, yeah, maybe making that change and taking that risk between 2014 and 2015 seemed like it was stupid and didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But we know <clears throat> that's not the keyboard we're going to want in 2050 right so change has to happen at some point right like right, there's right. got to be some experimenting we can't just every year say it's the same thing too everyone says like oh nobody asks for a thinner phone but apple keeps giving us thinner phones right right right. but it's like yeah but do you look at the 10-year timeline right look at how thick the first one was versus the one you have now and that does seem like an improvement right right maybe the millimeter every year seemed excessive yeah but you know, over 10 years, that whole centimeter seems pretty nice, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And if somebody's not thinking about it and pushing the boundaries, then it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, to me, it's about finding that balance, like not changing it for the sake of change, but also not leaving it the same just because it's easier. Yeah. Know? Yeah, for sure. Um, but... Man, do I think they, they should have tested that keyboard in a bunch of gnarly environments. Oh, yeah. They screwed the pooch on that one big time for sure. <laughs> like they should have given it to some guy with an open bag of Doritos. Oh, just... <laughs> yeah. I can't believe their own engineers weren't using it. Right. Exactly. 